Welcome to Grant Seeker Coffee Talks, a podcast for nonprofits to listen and learn from their peers. In this episode, we're learning how to write in a more compelling way. For the first 45 minutes or so, we'll hear expert advice from Marin Bass. Marin has spent over 25 years working in the nonprofit world. She's been an on-staff program developer, grant writer, consultant, project manager, trainer, reviewer, author, speaker, mentor, and coach. The topics Marin covers in her presentation are key techniques to help you write more clearly and advice on editing, proofreading, and revising. And for the final 20 minutes of the episode, we hear a Q&A with questions submitted by grant seekers. So without further ado, here's Marin Bass. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining me on what I uh, know is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to pack a tremendous amount of information into the hour that we have ahead, and I hope we have a wonderful time with it as well, because this is absolutely one of my favorite topics to share with people, power writing for grants and more, principles of clarity and structure. So full disclosure at the very beginning, we're not going to focus on how to write grant proposals. (laughs) We do that in all of our other workshops that we offer in Grants Magic U. The focus today is strictly going to be on principles of good writing, good business writing, good professional writing, good writing for everything that crosses your desk and uh, your work in the nonprofit world, including grant proposals. All right, so with that in mind, our practical goal, and this is a very, very tactical and practical workshop, you're going to hear a lot of um, great theory about why what I'm sharing with you works, because some of what we're going to be looking at is counterintuitive. It may go against what you might have learned, whether you remember it or not, back in high school or English composition classes, Um, or it may seem so self-evident that you're just going, well, duh, but those well does are the things that we tend to get under pressure when we're actually working under deadlines or or really struggling to make a key point in our written communication. So what I want to let you know is that we have a very practical goal um, and it's really twofold. It's to help increase your speed of writing, to help you write more quickly and more confidently without excessive emphasis on excessive fumbling or starting over. Fumbling and starting over is a natural part of the writing process, so we're never going to eliminate that completely. But what we can do is give you some really simple, really powerful tools to help minimize the fumbling and the starting over with the end result that we want to aspire to writing so clearly that the intelligent reader cannot possibly misunderstand my message. Now, we know for sure that that is an aspiration that we will probably never entirely achieve, but that's what we're aiming toward. So what we're going to be doing is going through um, a series of tools that are organized into two basic fundamental um, areas or arenas, and I got to thinking about what we're going to be looking at today, and I said, you know what, I really want to give more context to how what we're talking about here today applies in the grant writing world, into everything we're doing, but specifically in the grant writing world. And I just taught this um, a few days ago in a Q&A call through Grants Magic U. Way back when, when I first started my grant writing career, and it was actually longer ago than 20 years, it was pre-internet as a matter of fact, which gives you some clue how long ago that was, Um, and I'm still at it and still happy to be at it, I had the wonderful experience very, very early on in my grant writing career, which is focused on federal grants because I was working for a city, a large municipal human services organization, of getting on the phone late one afternoon with a program officer at the, what was then, I believe, the Department of Health health and edu- health education and welfare again that sort of date stamps the timing it's now something along the lines of health and human services with questions about a grant proposal that we were working on for his program i had a lot of questions about the rfp and just wanted to get some input from him on how best to structure our response to it 
But as we wrapped up the conversation, or as I thought we were wrapping up the conversation, he said, hold on just a minute. Before before we say goodbye, could I just take another couple of minutes with you? I said, well, of course. <laughs> You're the grant program officer. Of course I'm not going to say no. I don't want to hear anything more from you. I want to hear absolutely everything you have to say because that's how we relate with our grant program officer. They're the gatekeepers to the money, right? And he said, would you just do me one favor? Will you make sure that your proposal sings? And I said, well, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. He said, you know what, I have to tell you, I am so fed up with plowing through one proposal after another that is deadly, dull, and dry, and boring, and just absolutely, you know, just puts me to sleep before I even get to the bottom of the first page. I hate passing those proposals on to my review teams because I know they're going to react exactly the same way. For gosh sake, and he was actually a little stronger in his language than that, he said, would you please make your proposals sing? <laughs> And I didn't exactly know what he meant at the time, and I hadn't done any grant reviews myself at the time, so I didn't have his visceral experience of being snowed under by you know, a, a tsunami of deadly, dull, dry, and boring grant proposals. But over the course of my time in the grants world, I certainly have had that experience. And I know what makes a proposal sing, and I know exactly what he was asking us for. So I want to let you know that what we're going to be talking about here today is exactly what he was asking for when he pleaded, and it was pleading from his heart, please don't subject me to any more of those dull, dry, boring proposals. Let's just go ahead and dive right in on what we need to do to make sure that all of our writing sings, not just our grant proposal writing. We're going to start by looking at the issue of clarity. We call this the how of good writing. And I'm going to give you three clarity keys, three big principles that we're going to break down into a series of very specific tools. So I want you to stop and think. Here's a passage just to get us warmed up on what really doesn't work. <laughs> okay, What does this passage mean? I'm going to read it to you and see if you can figure out what it means. Are there any words in this passage that you don't know what those words mean? Let's see what this says. I'm going to try to do it with one breath. Technical assistance to institutional administrative staffs is authorized for the determination of the availability and appropriate utilization of federal and state entitlements designated to provide assistance in resolution of problems occasioned by the requirements of juveniles with disabilities. Any idea what that means? Well, you could figure it out potentially. Those are not words that are foreign to you. Every single word there is something that you could, you know what it means, all right? You're an intelligent reader. But how hard do you have to work to try to figure this language out? And how likely is it that you're actually going to misunderstand or not get the gist of it? And here's, the, um, here's what that packaging is intended to convey. We can help you find federal and state funds for services for children with disabilities, period. We can also help you plan how best to use these funds, period. That is the meaning that the language is intended to carry forward. So the question of why people write that way is a really deep psychological question that we don't need to get into here. But the point is you are not going to write that way because you're going to follow the golden rule of good writing. Really simple. If you did not like the way that writing felt to you when you were the reader, don't do that to the people that you're writing to. In other words, write unto others as you would be written unto. The exact kind of writing that works well for you is going to work well for your readers too. So it's not about writing to impress. Sometimes we get stuck in the idea that we need to impress somebody. Grant funders and grant reviewers is an example. But we're not writing to impress. We're writing to express. Or if we are going to write to impress, focus on writing to impress, not with the size of your vocabulary or the complexity of your sentence structure. Those are the things that make it hard to understand what you want to communicate. But rather with the strength of your ideas and the clarity of your thinking. So I like to talk about having your writing be transparent. I don't want anything. I don't want the extensive vocabulary or complexity of your sentence structure or anything to get between you and the powerful ideas and the clear thinking that you want to be communicating with your writing. Transparent. Okay, so clarity key number one. 
focus on simple familiar words simple familiar words more conversational tone why do we want to avoid complex language and focus on simple familiar words not talking about childish language here at all please hear me we're not talking about talking down to anyone believe it or not more simple more familiar words have more precise meanings and meanings of the language the simpler the language the more precise and exact the meanings tend to be there are certainly fast to write we don't have to spend as much time thinking about them or worrying about the spelling they're certainly easier for the reader to understand or more to the point they're harder to misunderstand so that sounds like a duh and I want to go way beyond duh because what we're doing in this session here today is I'm not just giving you principles this is a principle but I'm going to give you a series of tools to put those principles into action each one of these tools is extremely simple to use and the first one says one of the first ways that we focused on simpler more familiar language is to look for inflated words and replace them with another word that is simpler and more familiar and means exactly the same thing so what's an inflated word well these are examples of inflated words here there's are words that sort of think of them as hot air balloons they're sort of puffed up they're bigger than they need to be and on their own one at a time they're not going to really create much disruption for our readers but when we start to load our writing up with this kind of language it's like a rock in the road one or two rocks in the road isn't really going to slow things down too much but the more rocks there are in the road between between us and what we want our readers to understand the harder it's going to be for them to navigate the harder they're going to have to work at it and the more likely they're going to get knocked off course by them as well so what is a simpler more familiar word that means exactly the same thing as the word endeavor <clears throat> maybe you came up with a simple three-letter word try um, ascertain find out two words instead of one but simpler more familiar utilize that's a word that I think we should strike from the English language completely and just go to the word use or work with there's another alternative right but the, the idea of replacing inflated words is simply to find language that says exactly the same thing. It has to mean precisely the same thing. And find another word that is simpler, more familiar. It's easier for the readers to understand without expending excessive mental energy, or I should say without spending too much <laughs> mental energy, and then be able to um, capture the meaning that much more quickly. In our language, in the English language, we borrow heavily from other languages from all over the world. And the language that we think of as heavy and institutional and bureaucratic, the kind of language that my poor beleaguered program officer on that Friday afternoon so many years ago was warning me against, tends to come from the Latin. Um, the very simple, very most basic fundamental words that mean exactly the same thing but are very short and sometimes come across as being a little too abrupt or curt generally come from Anglo-Saxon. So we've got the detrimental from Latin, meaning exactly the same thing on the far end of the scale is Anglo-Saxon bad. And there's always at least one option in between. If we don't want to go with the heavy-duty institutional Latin language, which we almost never do, but we feel a little uncomfortable going all the way to that, you know, that, that more brusque-sounding, bad, try, prove, good, no. If we want something a little gentler, we always have options to fill in the middle. So we've got lots and lots of choices. We just want to tend toward the simpler, more familiar, and tend away from the institutional, bureaucratic, Latin-based language. Um, technical language what about technical language just a quick word or two here technical is in quotation marks because um, it's rare that we're actually using true technical language in most of our writing especially in the nonprofit sector technical languages for um, stem topics science technology engineering and math um, we usually are using something called jargon which um, we can always find a simpler more um, familiar and much more direct and readily understandable version of that jargon so only if there's no plain English substitute should use a quote-unquote technical word and if you do of course you want to make sure you explain what that word means before moving on 
Um, all right. So we're on key number three, practical key number, uh, excuse me, C, reuse your first choice words. This is something that really trips readers up because writers think we want to be creative. Writers think that readers get bored if they see the same word used again and again and again. And in fact, if we are straining to find substitute words <laughs> throughout our writing, we're actually making it harder for the readers to understand what we want to convey. So once you've found the best word to describe something or express an idea, stick with that same word. When you strain to find a substitute, you're wasting your own writing time. You give the reader the chance to miss your meaning and you make the reader work harder. None of those are things that we want to be doing. So here's an example of what that can look like, all right? So let's say this is a paragraph in a grant proposal that you're writing. And let's just read this through. Pretend you're the grant reviewer here. You're seeing this for the very first time. A portion of our grant will be used to send three employees to the Southwest Conference on Disabilities in November. The annual convocation features expert speakers. Okay, so there's the word convocation. What does that mean? Oh, okay, that references back to conference, the Southwest Conference on Disabilities. Okay, so there's a tiny little glitch there while I'm just sort of referencing back. What are we talking about here? Features expert speakers and discussions for working professionals. In addition, the program offers, okay, program um, okay, because that means the conference, we're going back to the conference again, offers a morning workshop focusing on employment issues. Registration for this session is $35 per person. Session, program, convocation, conference. Great, $35 for the whole conference. The fee of $60 for the event, what, includes lunch? I'm not sure what event refers back to. Wait a second, I'm getting a little bit confused here. Um, so something is $60 and something is $35. So this activity will, what activity are we talking about now? I'm really, really confused. Maybe the activity means lunch and then we're talking about a valuable learning experience and by now we're really, really confused. Can you see how hard I have to work when all I really needed to do was use the word conference, conference, conference every time I was referring to the conference as a whole. Readers do not get bored. Readers don't even notice because it's so seamless and they never, they, we just simply don't get stuck on the meaning. So see how hard you had to work to find a substitute word and see how hard the reader has to work to sort through exactly what you're referencing to and really risk misunderstanding where you're going. So what if you got a grant award for $35 and discovered that would only cover lunch <laughs> because of the misunderstanding in this, in this paragraph? Okay, so clarity key number one was all about simpler, more familiar language. And clarity key number two, we're going to focus on short and simple sentences. So what this means is we want our sentences to average 17 to 20 words. That's average. They can range from 2 to 30 words. After 30 words, things get really goopy and difficult for the readers to follow. And we want to make sure that we're including one main idea per sentence at the most two. One at the very most two main ideas per sentence. So long complex sentences may get you an A plus in your English composition class, but they're hard to read. They require a ton of mental energy. They're hard to write. It takes a lot more of your time and energy to write them in the first place. You really risk grammatical errors, and you can bury or mask important ideas. Really critical information might get lost inside a lengthy sentence that the reader might be struggling to make their way all the way through. So we're simply not going to do that. So we're going to focus on sentences that average 17 to 20 words. They can go up to 30 but no more than that, and only one at the most, two main ideas per sentence. Now, there's a wonderful, wonderful tool called the meat cleaver technique that you can use after you've done your writing. And that's what I love about a lot of these tools. We're actually not going to be thinking about them as much when we're writing, although we can. But when it, it's time to go back and review what you've written and, and figure out how to make it more clear for the reader, you can use these tools to quickly, quickly, quickly edit 
edit your writing and improve the clarity dramatically. So the meat cleaver technique simply says take a look at your long complex sentences and it's very very often you can find a point where you can just simply take a metaphorical meat cleaver, chop the sentence right there, turn it into two separate sentences with a tiny little bit of nip and tuck and you have instantly doubled the readability of your, of your writing. So here's a passage. This is 64 words. What's our average supposed to be? About 17 to 20. So I'm going to read this aloud and watch for the natural breath breaks. Watch for the place where your breath naturally breaks and see if that wouldn't be a good place to um, use the knee cleaver technique. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it all the way through. At the December meeting, the Citizens Task Force presented several proposals for restructuring the client service system. But after considerable discussion, the committee members decided the proposal should be presented in full to the entire board at the spring meeting and requested that the task force redraft the documents and schedule a second planning session to prepare for a spring presentation. So, where did you find the natural breaks? I found a natural break after client service system just before the word but. I found a natural break after spring meeting just before the word and. And then the natural break, of course, at the very end. So boom, 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 three quick chops of the meat cleaver, a little bit of nipping and tucking, putting our, um, our punctuation in and capitalizing where we need to, and boom, we now have three sentences where we had one. And take a look at what happened to the average. We're much, much closer to that average of 20 words per sentence, and it only took us a few seconds to get there. I love the meat cleaver technique. Boom, boom, boom. The other way, number, uh, excuse me, I, um, technique B is to look for inflated phrases and prune them back. So an inflated phrase, just like an inflated word, just means that we puffed a lot of hot air and made something much bigger than it needs to be. And buried inside all that hot air, there's a very clear meaning. We just want to find the simpler, more direct way of saying it. All of this has become sludge. We talked about rocks in the road. This kind of language is sludgy. It's like you know mud in the way that slows things down, gets the reader kind of stuck in terms of moving forward. We're going to move quickly through this one because it's pretty intuitive once you know what to look for. We are in receipt of, what if we just said we have? And what if instead of at the present time we just simply said now? What if instead of in the event that we just said if? Take a look at that, two letters. <laughs> Near, because, in order that turns into so, for the purpose of turns into so, Boom, 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 boom. Take a look at how much more clearly and quickly the reader is going to be able to move through that language that, again, just like the inflated words, it means exactly the same thing as its inflated hot balloon cousin. So key number, uh, excuse me, tool B, prune back inflated phrases. Also, along the same lines, get rid of redundancies and repetitions. Okay, so that's an example of redundancies and repetitions, right? The title itself. What that means is that we're using more than one word to repeat ourselves. We're actually doubling, um, doubling down and using excess language by repeating the same meaning in a second or third word. Absolutely correct. We don't need to say absolutely correct. We simply need to say correct. And you've instantly cut in half that particular phrase. We're talking about the shorter, simpler sentences. One way to make our sentences shorter is to eliminate unnecessary language and redundancies and repetitions are an example of unnecessary language. So this is what that might look like. Qualified expert. People will argue to you know the nth degree that no, I don't want I want people who are qualified. And then I say, well then you want an expert. No, I want a qualified expert. Expert means a qualified person, and the same is true for each and every one of these phrases. There really is no rational justification for keeping both words when one carries the full meaning that we want to be conveying. Okay, we have one more in, um, in this particular uh, clarity key, and that's to liberate 
varied verbs. I love this one. Verbs are what breathe life and action into our writing. Verbs are what move things along. Verbs are how we see real live living breathing people on the center stage of the theater of the mind. Verbs are what show people in action. But what happens is we bury them inside these phrases that take all of the energy, all the forward momentum out of them, just strip the life out of them completely and turn them into very flabby, very slow, very ineffective, what are called verb phrases. So let's look for the action verb that's buried inside each of these phrase examples right here. Number one, make a decision. Well, what are we actually doing there? We're deciding. That's the action that's taking place, right? All right, so that is, again, each and every one of these is so powerful, but if I were to choose one, this is, well, if I were going to choose my top five, <laughs> which is what I'm sharing with you, this is definitely top five. Verbs are, are well, I've already said what I need to say about the liberating the buried verbs. So I, again, this just goes back to the whole idea of sing and that struggle that we have um, that we don't want to be imposing on our readers to crack through this, this terribly difficult and challenging packaging to find what the good stuff is inside. Everything we've talked about in terms of clarity is all about stripping back what isn't necessary, stripping back unnecessary um, language, unnecessarily fat, flabby, and inflated language, stripping back unnecessary necessary language in our sentences to come to sentences that are clean, clear, that communicate clearly and that are transparent for the reader, easy for them to get to the meaning that we want to convey. Clarity key number three gets us into the issue of active voice verbs. Active voice versus what? Versus passive voice verbs. Using active voice verbs brings energy into our writing. And we're going to make sure you understand the distinction between active and passive voice verbs. But I want to tell you why. Active voice verbs bring the energy into the writing and it relays information the way the brain processes it. That means it doesn't make your reader guess who's doing what. It makes it easier for the reader to understand and make sense of what you're sharing. And it improves retention by helping your reader visualize that mental imagery of the theater, the action or the activity, and it brings people to center stage in your writing. So let's take a look at what we're talking about here. Again, sing, <laughs> and there's the stage. I want you to keep that empty stage in mind as we go through this because this is super, super powerful. Powerful. And I think our institutional writing and grant proposals in particular can tend to get bogged down in passive voice verbs. So we're going to call this the case of the invisible dog. The dog is burying the bone. That's a perfect example of an active voice sentence. Active means that the actor comes first. So if you're thinking about that stage, what are we going to do with that stage? It's empty right now, but we want our reader to see something happen on that stage. And the first thing that needs to happen is somebody needs to go on the stage as the actor. We need to put the dog on the stage. And then we need to have the dog doing something. And then we need to have the prop that he's going to do that thing too. So the dog goes first. What is the dog doing? The dog is burying. That's our verb, the action. What is he burying? He's burying the prop. He's burying the bone. We can do this in past tense. The dog buried the bone. The dog's on stage first. Then we see the action and the prop that he's using. Or the future, the dog will bury the bone. Okay, so always, always, always in an active voice sentence, which is what we want to be using more in our writing, the dog will come first, and then will the then comes the action, and then if there is a prop, then we see the prop itself. All right, the passive voice goes like this: it's prop plus action, and sometimes we actually get to see the actor. So the sentence would read: instead of the dog is burying the bone. The sentence in the passive voice would say, the bone is being buried. And then maybe the sentence ends with, by the dog. So 
So how problematic is that for the reader? We see a bone and we see there's action happening to it, but we don't see who's doing the action. That is terribly hard, in fact, impossible to visualize on that mental stage of the theater of the mind. We can't see the action until we see what's doing the action. And if the dog is at the end of the sentence, everything goes into suspended animation until we see the dog. Oh, the dog, that's what's going on. It could just as well be a child who's burying the bone, or it could just as well be a board member who's burying the bone. We can't, we can't activate the verb until we see who's actually doing the work. So again, the bone was buried, maybe by the dog. In the past tense, the bone will be buried, maybe by the dog in the future tense. So it's not about when the action happens, it's about where the dog is. Where's the actor? Is the actor at the beginning of the sentence on stage first, or is the actor coming on stage after we've already described what the action is? So the problem is that the dog can fall off the stage completely, and we end up with sentences like, the bone is being buried, the bone was buried, the bone will be buried. We have prop plus action, but no actor. And you simply cannot visualize the action when you don't have an actor on the stage. And that's what makes writing deadly dull when it goes into this bureaucratic passive voice construction. We never actually see real, live, living, breathing people on the stage doing whatever they're setting out to do. And it really is a matter of clarity. It's not just a matter of activating the verb, but it's a matter of clarity. Take a look at this passage here. This is a safety procedure. The following procedure is recommended. The bone is buried, okay? When the red light goes on, the instrument should be turned off. The bone should be buried. I'm giving you that overlay there so you can hear the, the sequencing there. All settings should be checked. The bone should be buried. The instrument should be turned on again only when it has been determined that all pressures are within safe tolerances. So we understand the language. It's not an issue of not understanding the words, but where's the dog? Who's supposed to be doing this? This is a safety procedure. Do you think it matters whether we know who's supposed to be taking each of these actions? Maybe it's the same person all the way through, or maybe the following procedure is recommended by the union. The instrument should be turned off by the operator. All settings should be checked by the supervisor. The instrument should be turned on again by the lab assistant. Can you see how important it is that we bring the actor on stage to make it really clear who's actually doing the action? All right, so I think that's all we're going to say about the passive and active voice verb. There are corollaries to clear writing that I want to share with you before we quickly move into um, the, the next thing I want to share with you. The corollary is the complexity corollary. The more complex the ideas that you're writing about, the greater the need to express them clearly in simple, familiar words and short sentences. So if what you're writing is pretty complex, it's all the more important to make sure that we use these clarity principles, the simple, familiar words and the short sentences to make sure that our reader has all the mental energy they need to grapple with the ideas and that they haven't wasted mental energy just getting through the packaging. At the same time, if for some reason you need a heavier vocabulary, there's lots of technical language for some reason, you can compensate by keeping your sentences extra short. Um, you can balance out the need for more intense language choices by making sure that the sentences are even shorter than the recommended average. And the final corollary is the creativity corollary, especially in the world of grants. People always ask me, but what happens about creative writing? Clarity trumps creativity every single time. Remember what we said at the very beginning that we're not writing to impress, we're writing to express. And if we get stuck on the idea that I'm a really creative writer and I want to bring my creativity to bear on this, the creativity goes into making excellent choices, very clear choices about what's best going to get the results that we want from our reader. It's not about getting an A plus on our English composition. That's an entirely different way of thinking about it. So we can be creative in using all the resources we have available to us to make sure that our writing is as clear as it possibly can be.
<clears throat> okay, so we're going to spend a few minutes taking a look at organizing. If clarity is the how of good writing, how we put our words and sentences together, organizing is the what. What do we actually bring in in terms of our ideas? So we're going to move through this fairly quickly, but these are pretty big concepts. And again, we've got a couple of different organizing keys. Organizing key number one is to ask why, who, and what. This is really saying, think like your reader. Put yourself in your reader's position and ask who, who, why, who, and what. The more we can think like our reader, our grant reviewer, our boss if we're writing a memo, whatever the case may be, the better you can shape your writing to get the results you want. And that's what we're really after, isn't it? Getting the results that we want. So we're going to ask, why am I writing this? What's the primary purpose for this document? What results do I want to achieve with this message? What specific impact, action, or effect? Or the bottom line is really, what do I want the reader or readers to do, think, and or feel as a result of this message? When they finished reading this, what do I want my reader to do, think, or feel? What's the result or impact I want this to have on the person that I'm sending it to? There are um, eight primary purposes to any piece of writing, and these are broken down in a number of different ways, so the list that you see if you, you know, Google this will be a little bit different from this. But the question, what I really want you to be doing is take that list, and for everything that you're writing, fill in the blanks on this question. The primary purpose of this message, this thing that I'm writing now, is to what? It's to instruct, inform, direct, persuade, request, demonstrate, document, or entertain who, so that this will happen as a result. The primary purpose of this message is to do this so that this will happen as a result. What do you imagine the primary purpose of a grant proposal might be? What do you imagine the primary purpose of an evaluation report might be? How about program procedures, partnership agreement, letter of inquiry? The, the focus is if you know your bottom line, then you can organize your entire written message to highlight the result, the specific result that you want to get from that writing, the specific action that you want your reader to take as a result of your writing. It will be so clear to the reader what's this all about and what does it have to do with me, which is what the reader is always thinking. So we're going to come back to that in just a minute, but we're going to move through this process of organizing key number two right now, which is outline, outline, outline. Now, I was a writer, a creative writer, and a business writer long, long before I was a grant writer, and I suffered terribly from writer's block. Um, many writers do. Um, it just never gets easier, except that... Writer's block disappeared for me almost entirely years and years ago when I really discovered outlining. And outlining not in the way that it's traditionally taught, but in a very different way. So outlining your ideas and information before you actually begin writing speeds the job of writing, actually makes it all go faster by separating the what you want to say from the how you want to say it. The outlining focuses on the what you want to say, and you can do that thinking separately from figuring out the exact words and sentences that you're going to use to convey that. This is what we call idea mapping, mind mapping. There are lots of ways that people think about this. This simply says take the idea that you're exploring and put that right in the middle of a big blank sheet of paper. This is actually um, thinking through a grant proposal in response to the question, what resources will we need to do the work we're proposing to do? And then when that idea is in the middle of this blank sheet of paper, your brain is able to work the way it's naturally geared to work, which is to take visual input, and begin to react to it. And you react to it by having thoughts and ideas come up in response to what you're seeing. Jot them all down. Everything that comes up in response to what you're seeing gets jotted down somewhere without regard for what they relate to or what the order is or how important they are or whether they're even relevant to the end product or not. Because every time you put something down, you're also giving your brain additional new input to react to. And that's where we can go deeper and deeper and deeper into pulling together all of our our best thinking, all of our most creative ideas around a particular focal question. So this is sort of the end result. You see we brought 
color in. We highlighted different areas that seemed to connect with each other. We drew arrows in between. And now we're ready to pull from this and organize it in a fashion that looks a little bit more like that traditional outline that you just saw. So this in itself is worth the entire time that you're here today to break out of the box of linear thinking when it comes to organizing our ideas into good, clear writing and instead let ourselves make a big mess first and then go in and clean it up. That's actually what our brain is set up to do. We've got a creative brain function that will produce something that looks like this and we've got a cleaning up brain function that's all about organizing, analyzing, putting things in order. That's who we want to bring in to turn this into a clear, coherent um, piece of writing. So organizing key number three, lead with your bottom line. So with the work we did in um, key number one is all about identifying what your bottom line is and the work we did with organizing key number two is all about bringing all of your ideas and thinking out in a mind map or idea map form. When we're actually putting our material together, I want you to find your bottom line and put it first. Lead with your bottom line. Do not bury what you want your reader to do, think, or know as a result of this reading somewhere down in the bottom or the middle or even the bottom of your piece of writing. Don't make your reader second guess or search for what this is all about. Tell them right up front at least one what and one why. What you're getting at, what you're writing about, what it has to do with them, what you want them to do with the information, why this matters, why they should take action, why it's relevant to them. That should all be right at the tippy tippy top of your written message. Why is that the bottom line statement, you might think of this as the overview or the summary or the topic sentence or sort of a, a thumbnail of the entire message is the single most important part of your writing. There is nothing in your writing that's more important than your statement of the bottom line. For the reader, this is the statement that answers the question, so what, what's this got to do with me? And it sets the stage for all of the information and details that follow. They can easily see how the information you're sharing adds up to and supports the bottom line. So the secret is people read this way all the time anyway. They're always scanning your reading to find the bottom line. And instead of making them use all that mental energy to find the bottom line, maybe miss it or maybe come to the wrong conclusion about it, let's just make it super easy and put it right up front. Bonus number one, your readers will understand and re retain details better when they know ahead of time what they're going to be reading about and what those details are leading up to. And bonus number two, this is a shocker, the reader gets to decide how little or how much additional detail they need before taking action. They may not need to read the whole thing before they understand and are ready to take the action on your behalf. So a quick start way to identify your bottom line, it's really, really simple. Stop and ask, what's the one piece of information, the one sentence or the one idea about which I can say, if the reader reads this and nothing more, would she or he get the point? And that needs to be right at the top. So back to sing one more time as we're really getting to ready to wrap up. Keeping in mind everything we're talking about here is let's make that packaging as easy to get through as possible. That's what we're looking at when we're talking about clarity, simple language, simpler sentences, active voice verbs, organizing so that it's easy for the reader to see what this message has to do with them and what we're asking them to do in response to it. And we're putting people front and center on the stage of the reader's mind by using language that's simple and natural and direct and we are um, showing those active verbs, action taking place. And we're also putting the person, the reader, on center stage by showing how much we respect their time by being very respectful of their mental energy. So just a real quick little wrap up, we're really breaking the process of writing down into six steps. We've got the planning piece, which is our outlining. We've got the composing, which is what we talked about in terms of putting our words and sentence choice together. And then we've got the polishing, which is all about editing and proofing. And if we try to do all of these things at the same time, that's when we get writer's block. So we're really talking about separating this process out into its three basic components. The bottom line we're looking at throughout this entire process is if you put yourself in the reader's place, would the message be clear 
and would you respond the way you want your reader to respond? Now, this is not something that you understand it once and you get it for the rest of your life. This is something all of us tussle with with every single written communication. Um, I know I do, whether it's a, you know, a text message I'm sending to a family member or an email to a friend <clears throat> or a business communication. The same principles apply. If you put yourself in the reader's place, would the message be clear and would you respond the way you want your reader to respond? <clears throat> so that really is all about the speed, tools that we can use and ways we can think to help us write quickly and confidently without excessively fumbling or starting over. And the end result is to write so clearly that our reader hopefully cannot misunderstand the message. And again, remember we're using the golden rule of good writing. We're not impressing with the size of our vocabulary or the complexity of our sentence structure. But if we're impressing with anything at all, it's with the strength of your ideas and the clarity of your thinking and the power of whatever it is that you want to convey. One last look at the reminder to make our proposals sing, <laughs> to make all of our writing sing in the way that we've been talking about this entire hour. The next and last thing that I really, a couple different things as we're wrapping up is that I know that you will get the most value out of what we shared here today, out of your investment of your time in this hour in your busy schedule. If you take action right away with something that you learned, I call that a quick win action, something you could do right away. Nobody else needs to be involved in and your success is absolutely guaranteed. But there's also a way to really activate your learning by thinking about an action you can take soon based on something you learned here today that's going to be more involved. Maybe you need to bring other people into it. That's really going to give you high leverage. It's going to move the dial in a really big way around something that might have been stuck for you. Um, you're going to plan a little bit about when you're going to take these actions, who else needs to be involved, what are the resources you need and how you're going to hold yourself accountable. So thank you. Tammy, back to you. I do have about three or four questions Great. if you have time that, that have come up that are really good ones that everybody would like to, to hear. And one is, um, as a grant reviewer or from your experience as a funder, when people put down that there's 500 characters or 3,000 or 2,000, whatever it is, if you follow these concise rules that they've learned today and they come in way under or under, is that, a, is that viewed as negative from the funder? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, whether it's characters or page count, sometimes you're given a page count. I want to say that the funders are being thoughtful about how much detail they believe they need from you around those questions. And so coming in way under, probably you may have to just take a, a closer look and see if you are um, missing out on important detail. Um, I would never pad your language. If you're using all of the clarity principles here and you find out that you're significantly under, I wouldn't pad your language. I wouldn't go back in and just add words. But I'd think about if there's more information that might additionally clarify or help the, the funder um, understand in, in order to make an informed and intelligent decision. Um, so, so that's a. I love that question because usually it's the opposite. How in heck? How the heck do I get my responses down to those character limits? But that's a, a great question. So, if you're significantly under, you may just want to go back and think again about whether there's more detail that would um, support your case. But it has to be relevant detail. It has to be thoughtful detail, and it has to definitely relate to um, relate to the specific question that's being asked. Great question. I love that. I don't think I've yeah. ever had that question come up before. Before. Yeah, it's a good one. It came up multiple times, and it relates to the blog that you wrote on our website um, that we posted this month about, you know, that 12-12-12, thinking about what that grant reviewer has to do and read through. And if you could can concisely nail it in fewer characters, um, you know, that's that's definitely could be a big win for you. Without seeing, doing the slash and burn, and that's really thing. important as well. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, without this stop short of, of cutting it back to the point where it's barely, you know, it, it, it's barely yeah. readable because it's so <laughs> abrupt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. So here's another question. In your experience, do you find that federal and state grant reviewers place more value on technical or lofty language and smaller foundations are more moved by emotional writing? Um, it's not a binary choice, 
people are people. Um, there's no difference in the hearts and minds of the people who are reading federal grants and the people that are reading grant proposals to small foundations. Um, readers, yeah, I, I read tech, I wrote federal proposals for years. I've read federal proposals for years. The program that I've managed for the last 10 years now is a federally funded grant program, a pass-through grant program. So I'm working with the, the feds on one side and our grantees on the other side. Um, and people are people. But I think the point is we want to maintain a professional language. Um, and I want to make a clear distinction between, you know, technical on the one side, no. There, there really isn't technical language. Um, unless you're actually doing a science project, that's different. Um, there's only people doing things <laughs> to get specific results. And that's really the story that we want to tell. Um, and if you imagine, you know, my, my program reviewer, the one who adjured me, pleaded with me to make sure my proposal sings, was a federal program officer who'd been doing federal grant, grant proposal um, management for many, many years. And so he's like saying, please stop burying me under these expectations that people have that you have to write this way because this is how readers want to read. Readers don't want to read that way. Um, on the other hand, you might be a little more informal, but I wouldn't go all the way to casual. I would never go into casual. I would say closer to professional conversation, um, more the way that you would actually um, engage in a professional conversation with a peer, a peer, a colleague, not somebody that we perceive as an expert um, or you know that we are attempting to impress. Again, I think sort of artificially inflating our language for a federal grant review panel is an effort to impress, and that takes a focus away from expressing. Um, on the same side, um, artificially going into emotional language as opposed to simply demonstrating what people are doing and experiencing is also an attempt to impress or manipulate, and I don't want us to do that either. I don't want either of those to be happening. I just want us to show up with clarity and show what's actually happening for the people that we're setting out to serve, and um, invite the reviewers to be a part of that. Yeah, a, a related one is interesting. So what if the funder on their website or the person you talk to uh, um, uses inflated language? Does that mean you should try to do it in your grant proposal? Well, again, think this through a little bit. <laughs> I was about to say one way you can sort of get a sense of the level of language is to look at the website, but the way that question was phrased, it sort of has me running in the exact opposite direction. Because the people who are sitting down to, um, to write, the people who are writing the language at the website, are very often not the people that are reading the proposals. And um, I would just like you to be thinking about the 12-12-12 reviewer all the way through. Uh, and in, in that blog, I hope everybody reads that blog, I'd actually forgotten about that. Tammy, maybe you can include the link to that in your, in your mail out as well. What we're really doing is putting yourself, putting you in the position of the grant reviewer and asking you what would Betty do? Betty is our, our prototypical grant reviewer. She's our avatar there. And it's like, what, what choice would I make right now that would um, help Betty get excited about what we're proposing to do rather than putting her to sleep or boring the bejeebers out of her? And um, you know, just asking that question can bring a ton of clarity as well. And again, you can elevate your language a little bit. You've got lots of latitude um, in terms of word choices and in terms of how you put your sentences together. But readers are readers. People are people. And um, no matter what the level of quote unquote expertise for the people on the reader panel, they're all working really hard. They all have limited mental energy. None of them want to be written down too, but it's shocking how simplified and streamlined our language can be and be respectful at the same time. Yeah. Um, another question here is um, if you have a, a, a situation where you find yourself in a larger paragraph and are required to discuss the same best word seven and eight times, it ends up being extremely repetitive and, and so kind of seeing if there's any corner cases or situations where it is advisable to revert to a substitute word, possibly mm -hmm. for one or two of the instances. Or 
just in sake of clarity, not. You know, so what's your recommendation there? <laughs> well, as, many, as soon as you say for the sake of clarity, you know, it sounds like the person asking the question understands that the clearer choice is to keep using the same word. And, uh, and I think she or he, you know, kind of knew where the, the clear choice was, and I completely agree. Um, you don't necessarily need to use, you know, this was the Southwest Conference on Juvenile Disabilities or something like that. You don't need to use the whole title the whole time, but the word conference, 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 wherever that's what we're talking about is what's going to keep that clear. It becomes a reference point all the way through the paragraph. Trust me, repetition is almost never, I never, ever, ever hear great reviewers saying, ah, oh, they use the same word four times in the same paragraph. That's so repetitive, bad writing, you know, we're not going to find them for that. It's transparent. That's the thing. They don't even notice it because they don't have to spend any mental energy trying to figure it out. And that's the point. That's what transparent means. That means minimal mental energy to decode the language so that all of the focus can be on the information that's being presented. So please don't go into that creative writing mode where your sophomore English teacher counted you down because you used the same word more than once. This is not that. Thank you. Here's a short one uh, that you might have a short answer for. What's another way of saying leverage? <laughs> saying what now? The word leverage. Leverage. Ooh. <laughs> I like the word <laughs> leverage. <laughs> I've never actually thought about that before. <laughs> you know, uh, it, I guess it depends on the context, and that's one of yeah. those wonderful things about quote unquote. It's kind of a pseudo jargony word that is going to mean slightly different things in different contexts. So that's a wonderful question. I would love to use that as an exercise to find out different contexts for the word and see if there is a, a more direct way of <laughs> It's like the word facilitate. It means many yeah. different things. And if we use it uh, expecting somebody's going to understand it one particular way um, and they understand it a different way, it's very, very different. That's a great question. <laughs> I know people are chiming in. I love this. This uh, they're saying maybe influence or way, um, and somebody else is like, "Yeah, I use that all the time." It just I know. <laughs> I know. That's great. <laughs> so, um, oh, let me see if there's a, another question here that's good for for um, everyone. Um, I do have one too. I, I think I would like to go back um, as long as we're okay. together here and, and answer my own question about what's the purpose of a grant proposal. So go ahead and see if you pull up other questions and then I'll, I'll chime in on that question. <clears throat> okay, somebody did ask you to go back to that. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so that, that yeah. would definitely be good. And um, somebody asked, can we serve as the actor for your institutional name? Oh, absolutely. So we, meaning we're the organization that's doing the work, we put ourselves on center stage and we show what we're doing and we show what we're doing it with. Um, that's such a rich question because I do get questioned all the time about, you know, we, 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 should we talk about ourselves in first person or third person? How often can we use the word we? Um, that's one of those areas where you can make adjustments depending on the level of informality that you think is really appropriate for a particular audience or funder. Um, you don't want to use the you don't want to overuse we because it starts to sound the same as when you overuse I. I do this, I do that, I do something else. It's like, oh, really? One way of avoiding that is to use the name of your organization or a shortened form of the name of your organization, but it's wonderful. You can even say our board, our volunteers, our program team. Those are other ways of getting around that we, 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 and really um, creating a, a clearer mental image for the reader. We doesn't really communicate a mental image, but our board, our volunteers, that begins to show real life living, breathing people. Um, I hate when we talk about ourselves in the third person, meaning they, when we're talking about our own work. Um, that is not objective. I was taught by my very first boss with my very first grant proposal that that was objective. It's not. None of, nothing about proposal writing is objective. It's intentionally subjective. But um, what a great question. So I hope that helps a little bit, paying the thinking on that. These are yeah. really thoughtful questions. 
These are wonderful questions, Tammy. <laughs> um, now you said you wanted to go back to that. Um, what, what part was it? Yeah. So the primary purpose of this message, the primary purpose of this grant proposal, is to do what so that this will happen. You think about that a little bit. I'll just go right to where I want to go with this. It is not to persuade. It is not to instruct. It's not to inform. It's not to direct. You're not telling the funder to give you the money. You're not trying to persuade them to give you the money. That's where people kind of get stuck. And we have some interesting conversations about that. You're not even requesting the money. Request means that you have a reasonable expectation that the person is able and willing you know, to, to do what you're, you're here to say. That isn't it. When you think about the 12-12-12 reviewer and you think about the fact that your proposal is one of many, and that's where we really make that transition between um, thinking about our one and only and the 12-12-12 reviewer who really understand that everybody loves the proposals that they submitted equally as much as you do, and the grant reviewer is sitting there with a stack of 12, and going to be, you know, reading through all 12, and ultimately the team is going to be coming together to decide. Um, oh, and I love talking about what goes on in the grant review process, <laughs> really opening up that black box. <clears throat> the way I think about this, persuade sounds manipulative. We're trying to convince somebody of something against their own judgment. You taking this position, and I'm trying to persuade you off of that position into another way of thinking. I don't want to do that with my grant proposals. What I want a grant proposal to do is demonstrate. I want a grant proposal to demonstrate the strength of our planning and the impact, the potential impact of our services. That's how I would fill in the blank, so that this will happen, so that the grant reviewers will have all the information they need to make an informed, confident, and intelligent decision about our grant proposal. So there's a whole shift there away from trying to persuade them so they'll say yes to really recognizing that we don't have any control over the yes. We really do not have any control over the yes. What we do have control over is how well we show up. It's like an audition more than a competition. We only have control over how well we show up. We want to bring everything to the table. We want it to be as clear and powerful a demonstration as we can possibly put together so that their reaction is, wow, this is exactly what we're looking for. I would love for us to be able to say yes to this proposal. Let's have at it and see what we can do. That's the way I would answer that question about the primary purpose of the grant proposal. Okay. Great. Uh, we still have a lot of people sticking around and, and have some questions. So um, is, it, is it okay to be, here's two that are kind of related. Um, is it okay in the same proposal to be in third person sometimes and then sometimes go to we or should you always be consistent? I and, want there to be, yeah, okay, go ahead, read the yeah. second one, yeah. No, no, I, as I read the second one, it is different, so go ahead. Okay. Um, there's a way that you can do both to uh, without compromising clarity. So you can talk about we in one sentence, um, <clears throat> and as I said, you can talk about our board. Um, you can even say the board as long as it's clear that you're still talking about your own organization. But I would never say um, when you're talking about the board, you can use the word they. Um, so our board is meeting on June you know, 25th for this particular thing. They will approve or consider blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, so there's the element of the we, the organization as the whole. We, the collaborative network as a whole. It could be more than your one organization. It could be those partners that are working with you in the community. And then as you're talking about different elements or players inside that collective, then you can focus more if you want to. It could be appropriate to be very clear who you're talking about, and then you can use the third person pronouns as well. Um, I, I think that, that, might, that might help. Yep. 
so I can be in charge of how much information he has and whether that's the right information for him to, if he chooses to, to say yes. That doesn't close off the possibility of him coming back and saying, you know what, I think about this differently, then that opens up that possibility as well. Okay. So see, there really are no simple, there really are no simple answers yeah. here, are there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the questions can be complex too. Here's a good one. Uh, many grant applications are structured with specific questions, not allowing the statement of exactly what we're asking for up front. And that kind of plays into the letter of inquiry or sometimes there's a uh, a, a pre-qualification that sure. allows you to put that summary. But this question is, if the grant application does not have that, is that does it make sense to state this early on even though it's not answering their first question? Well, here's, here's the whole premise behind how we teach grant writing at Grants Magic U. We do our project development independent of a response to a particular grant maker's requirements as to form and format. So in our perfect world, we have done all of this development work and we've got what we call our master proposal blueprint. It's based around 10 underlying planning questions. And then we're able to, when we come to a funder like the one you're just describing, we're able to pull language from what we've already developed and plug it in and fine tune it in accordance to what they want us to be reporting forward. You know, and what that does is, um, you know, instead of building our response around the way they form out the questions, it gives us a much better chance of, of um, giving them the information they need even if they don't ask for it in exactly that way. And I have to be really upfront as a grant maker, I get to be in conversation with lots of grant makers and so do you, Tammy, I know through all of the work that Foundant does. And as grant makers, we don't always um, we don't always know the best way to get the information that we really need. So if I were a grant maker, and all my grant making, I always ask for that summary statement as the very first part of the proposals, but not all grant makers do. Yeah. Um, yep. So the, the response is that they're going to be looking for information in the specific places where they've asked you to plug that information in. And you might just include as early as you can a sentence that gives context to the entire proposal. Just one sentence, and that's one of the things we teach in our free course called the Quick Start Guide to the One-Page Grant Proposal, is how do you construct that one bottom line sentence that you can plug in almost into any grant proposal format to create that context to help them really understand what the rest of the proposal is all about. It's a challenge, and it doesn't always, you know, you don't always have the latitude to do that for sure. But Again, a really thoughtful question. Nice, and I think that's a great segue. I mean, there's a few more questions, but they're really more specific to a, a whole different topic. So if mm. we didn't at, answer your question, ask and answer your question today, we do need to wrap it up. Um, uh -huh. And so thank you so much, Marin. We really appreciate the value that you put into this, and everybody has been chiming in with thanks and appreciation and, and uh, just every um, kind of feedback on how great this has been. So thank you for the tips and advice you've shared with us and allowing us to record this and share it with our community. Can you have anything else to add in closing, Marin? Boy, no, just that I'm so excited that we had so many people that were excited about this topic because it is mission critical <laughs> in everything we do in our workplace, not just our grant seeking. And it's just a real privilege to um, be able to share some tools that help us all be more successful in um, you know, having a big impact in the things that we really care about in our community and in the world. So thank you and happy grant seeking. <laughs> yes, yes. And we are both, both Marin and Grant Hub and Foundant are are excited to be partners with you in, in helping you succeed in your fundraising efforts. So thank you and have a great rest of your day. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>